Well, greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Seminary Unboxed podcast. I'm Dr. Matt Ayers, president of Wesley Biblical Seminary. And today it is my great pleasure to have on friend, co-worker, uh, Dr. David Schreiner. Welcome, Dr. Schreiner. I am glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, um, Dr. Schreiner, what we want to do is just have you introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about who you are, mm -hmm. your educational background, um, kind of how you got to be a part of the WBS mm -hmm. family, and then I want to talk a little bit about archaeology in the Old Testament. So, tell us about you. Yeah. So, um, I'm a PK. I grew up in the United Methodist Church. My dad was a UM minister for uh, 36 years. He retired a few years ago. But uh, So I grew up in the church, uh, part of the United Methodist Church, so deeply, uh, deeply ingrained in the Wesleyan tradition. Uh, and then I, I also went to a Wesleyan school. I went to Indiana Wesleyan for my undergraduate degree. And then I went to Asbury Theological Seminary and got my master's degree um, from 2007 to no, 2004 to 2007, and then from 2007 to 2012, I stayed there and got a, um, a PhD in biblical studies with an emphasis on Old Testament. Um, I'm married. Uh, we got a wife. Uh, my wife's name is Jenny, and we've been married since 2006. And we have three daughters. Maddie is currently 10, Bailey is currently 7, and Lily is 2. Ten, seven, and two. Yes, that's a range. I've got minor twelve down to two. Yes, so I know. Yes, yes, and all girls. And I grew up in the family of all boys. Interesting. So it's like, yeah, it's completely flipped. And so the emotional roller coaster that is my daily life is. I, I, I'm getting used to it day by day, but I don't know if it's ever. If I don't know if it's anything that I'll ever truly be used yeah, to. Yeah, sure. I, so, someone once told me about you know my kids are young too that how the days. We talk about how the years feel like they go by so fast, yeah. which is kind of strange because the days feel like they go by so long. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it's a daily occurrence where I'll look at my watch and I'll say, 4.30, and I'm thinking, is it I, bedtime feel, <laughs> I feel like I've been up for 32 hours, yes. and when are my kids going to bed? Yes, yeah. yes, yes. But yeah, but then you look back on them and you look at pictures from you know a year ago and you're like, wait, sure. what? That, I know. They were that small? I know, I know. It's It's crazy. Crazy! I can't believe I got a twelve-year-old running around the house. So, um, you talked about uh, your time at Asbury Seminary. I want to hear more about your PhD studies. So, what did you write on for your? You said PhD, biblical studies with an emphasis or concentration in Old Testament. Right. So, what was your topic for dissertation? So, the Asbury Seminary's PhD program—it's—it's it's just kind of lumped under the category of biblical studies, and then you declare a area of emphasis. Sure. Obviously, yeah. either New Testament or Old Testament. Um, so, I went the Old Testament route, and I wrote. I wrote my dissertation on the theme of uh, divine choice of Jerusalem. Uh, so I looked at the passages that um, specifically had the Lord, Adonai or Yahweh, however you want to say it, as the subject of a particular verb, Bahar, and then the object of that verbal action was either Zion or Jerusalem. And, I, and, and interestingly enough, everybody talks about the theme of, of Jerusalem's election. Sure. And what I, what I set out to do was to look at a, a, a sliver within that larger theme because the reality is, is that theme of divine choice with respect to either Jerusalem or Zion, mm -hmm. it only appears 14 times. Yeah, it's not very frequent, It, is it? it isn't. And, yeah. and that's kind of, and that was, that always struck me as odd when I was getting ready to write my dissertation. Now, there is the debate of whether or not Deuteronomy speaks to it, but the interesting thing about Deuteronomy's usage is it never specifically states Jerusalem. Huh, interesting. It's always the place that the Lord will choose to put His name or, right. or however it's said. Right, right. But it never specifically says Jerusalem. 
And so building on some work from uh, one of my old professors who questions that and, and what is the place of the name in Deuteronomy, I kind of took a different assumption from the scholarly consensus where I said, no, I don't necessarily think it means Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Everybody agrees it doesn't say Jerusalem, but a lot of the scholars will say, but it means Jerusalem. Sure, sure, sure. But I was like, no, 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 I don't think we can make that jump. And so I, I discuss it, but then I, I moved in a different way. And when you go that way, there's only 14 times where that specific syntax is, appears in the Old Testament. And so I just looked into it and uh, tried to, to figure out, you know, historically, why did it come up when it came up? Why sure. did it, um, why did it, in my opinion, fall out of usage rather quickly? Right, so there's a right. really, it's kind of like a flash in the pan. Yeah, sure. It pops up sure. and then it's mentioned in Zechariah, which is a prophet during the early second temple period. Right. And then it disappears completely. Yeah, it's, it's not like a sustained base no. note across the narrative of the Old Testament, you know, story. And it's not like this perennial theme that right. runs. Now, the, the placement of God's name kind of is, yeah. you know, but as far as Jerusalem as the kind of geopolitical center yeah. of God's chosen people. Yeah, and, yeah. And so I, I, I looked into that, and I think essentially what I, what, I, what I kind of alluded to was I think that what happens with Zerubbabel is actually really key to, to kind of giving us a window into why this thing kind of completely tailed off. Um, and, and, and because there's some interesting things that happened to Zerubbabel, yeah. who is the grandson of King Jehoiachin. Um, uh, there's some interesting political things that happened to him right there that kind of, in my opinion, kind of pushed the ideas into a, a new different direction. So. Yeah, and thinking about geography and the Old Testament and God's presence among his people, something I've always been really intrigued by is Ezekiel the prophet, who's at the same time a priest, right. which isn't very common. You have a prophet yeah. and a priest who goes with God's exilic people out of right. the Jerusalem area, mm -hmm. and yet he has visions of Jerusalem a, a Jerusalem, yeah. and the presence of God and kind of this idea of that you have on the one hand God's present presence being specially revealed in this place, the temple mm -hmm. of his chosen location. On the other hand, it's mobility, that it can go with God's people yes. in a way at least into Zion. And then there's the implications of this for the new heavens and the new earth right. and what it means to dwell right. in the presence of God and what it means to be the temple as the people of God. I mean, the implications theologically, especially for, you know, New Testament uh, believers, Christians are far reaching, I think. So that's, that's tremendous. Um, so let me just keep going a little bit here. Uh, so you finished your PhD and then you were teaching kind of around, ended up at Wesley Biblical right. Seminary. Yeah, now your title is Associate Professor of Old Testament. Yeah. And uh, before talking about, you know, archaeology, which is kind of what I want to focus on a bit, just tell us about some of the publications that you're working on right now, yeah. or, or even more generally, what, what's, what's interesting you right now as an Old Testament scholar yeah. doing this full-time? So right now my research is, I, mean, I was actually having a little laugh with my brother-in-law about this. He likes to poke fun. Uh, because I'm constantly talking about that's what brother-in-laws um, are for. Yeah, that's yeah. Yeah, um, and he's a he's a biologist too, so you know whatever. Yeah. Um, but he he's likes to he's been having fun poking fun of me because I'm I'm talking a lot about kings. My uh, like the book of kings. The book of kings. Yeah, yeah I'm sorry. Um, and that's kind of where my research is is focusing on, and it'll be focused on that I think for the next you know handful of years, because of some of the publications uh, that I have lined up. I I just had a commentary accepted for publication. Uh, it's an integrative commentary. It's a it's a commentary that bridges exegetical insights with homiletical ideas. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, I co-wrote that with. So, a, like for pastors. Yes. Yeah. Yes, sure. That's, right. a, that's exactly. Homiletics meaning yeah. the 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 art and science of preaching. Yeah. So 
people studying passages to turn around and preach yeah. them, right? And, 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 and the way the commentary is laid out, I, I co-wrote it with a pastor from northern Indiana in Milford, Indiana. Um, that's, that's been accepted for publication, so it's run through, currently it's running through the editorial process, um, and that's going to be published with Kriegel Academic. Oh, wonderful, yeah. And, um, and then I have another commentary on Kings, but it's different. Um, there's, there's personal translation issues involved. It's a little bit more academically robust. Uh-huh. Um, and that's, that's further down the line. So that one being more for scholars, the, f- the first one being more for pastors. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would think that's a... Not that pastors aren't scholars, but typically pastors don't inhabit the world of academia. Right, you know, most pastors don't really particularly care about the textual variants right. surrounding right. 1 Kings 28, 3, you know, right. whatever. Right. Sure. Actually, that's not even a chapter. 1 Kings 22, 3. Um, <laughs> uh, so, um, uh, so, so those are kind of the bookend things. And then in between there, I'm currently working on a book. I'm co-writing with a colleague uh, of mine, uh, a friend of mine that um, currently um, lives out in uh, Denver, Colorado, and he works with uh, Denver Seminary. And um, we're writing a book on the Omride Wars. Oh, yeah, particularly, sure. And we're focusing on 1 Kings 20, 1 Kings 22, and then 2 Kings 3. Um, and we're essentially looking at the way the historian and the way the book recounts the history of um, Omri's conflicts with the Arameans yeah. and then ultimately the Moabites. So it's a, it's a historical study. And so right now, that's really kind of occupying my time. It's the, these historical ideas surrounding Iron Two and the book of First and Second Kings. Sure. So for, for listeners who may not be, you know, kind of read into the conversation, Iron Two being a, a time within ancient history, and then Omri being one of the kings of Israel or Judah, I can't remember. Well, he's the Israelite king. Israelite king. And he's and the one that married Jezebel. And right. so every, he's the guy that everybody loves to hate, which I think is part of the intrigue when it comes to the Omri dynasty and specifically Ahab, what we know, what we, Ahab, what we know from archaeology is that, you know, Ahab is like the opposite of what we evangelicals love to do to him. We love to talk about how terrible he was. He married this horrible woman and he introduced um, all this religious apostasy into the Israelite culture. All of it is true. Absolutely all of it is true. But the archaeological picture really kind of paints for us another side to this man and another side to this reign. And we can say with a fair amount of confidence that at least in terms of society and economics and politics, this guy was, this guy is who put Israel on the map. Yeah, yeah. He so, made them yeah. into a geopolitical force. And so that many other, are, other countries are writing about in their annals. Yes. They're mentioning the king of Amri. Right. And, right. So you have the Moabite, you have the, the Mo- extra Israelite, yeah. you know, archaeological findings. Right. So right. Tel Dan speaks of Amr, uh, Ahab. The Assyrians talk about Ahab. Um, actually, they refer, the Assyrians actually refer to Israel as a nation as the house of Omri. Right. Which tells right, us sure. how important Ahab and Ahab's father was to the Assyrian psyche and to the ancient Near Eastern world because they just associated the northern kingdom with this particular family. Kind of like how everybody associates the kingdom of Judah with the house of David. David. Right, right. Um, and so this guy cast this really, really long shadow. But that's only half the story, right? And so if we focus merely on his political achievements, merely on his economic achievements, we're going to get one side of the picture. And that's the side of the picture that if we focus on, we miss it. We miss the, 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 the message that God wants us. And the message that God wants us to, to, to get from this man's life and experiences is that's not what matters. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting point that, that I think you're making there. And I just want to highlight for a moment, kind of dwell on there, is that Archaeologically, that is, let, let's call that from the secular account of yeah. things. He is a 
important person in history who contributed good things in terms of economic stability and growth, expansion, reputation, etc. At the same time, that's not the story that the story of Scripture tells. Right. That's the secular account. What the Scripture tells is a completely different story, which means that things that may look good in terms of the advancement, and I hesitate to use the word the evolution of society and civilization, may not be good on the other side, that side being spiritual things. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing to think about, that there are two versions of history. There's God's version of history and what's important to know, and then there's outside of God's version of history. So I want to I want to kind of, there's a specific question I want to ask about archaeology, mm-hmm. um, that before we get away from, it gets away from us. What what century are we talking about when we're talking about Ahab, B.C.? Right, so that's 8 50-ish BC. Okay, so ninth century. Ninth century. So this is this is quite early. Yes. Like this is a long time ago. Yes. So the follow-up question for that is, how far back does archaeology, archaeological studies, attest to and support what we find in the Old Testament? Now I know that's a very open and it, complicated. It, it, the way to answer that question is how explicit of. Uh, uh, how explicit of connections do you need? Okay, so, so, for inst- so for instance, yeah. so in the case of Omri, in the case of Jehu, these are kings of the northern kingdom, um, we have specific names. And, and, and even in the case of Jehu on the Black Obelisk, we have pictures, what appears to be a picture of Jehu. And which century did you say that uh, was? Jehu is the guy who, who the, Jehu is the divinely sanctioned assassin that puts an end to Ahab's family. So it's the same century, same it's, century. It's, it, but it's just, it's around 840-ish. Okay. Is, is when Jehu comes to the and, throne. And we have got archaeological evidence referring to the time of David. Yes. And, so, and then the Teldan stela um, is a Aramean, an Aramaic inscription that was found at the site up north at Teldan, prob- so, probably written by Hazael, which is who's mentioned in the Bible, around the same time period. He becomes the king of Damascus. And that's the 10th century, yeah, 10th, um, 11th century. It well, the, the Teldan stela is, was written... Um, at the end of the ninth century, but I'm talking about David was 10th, 11th century. So. Right. So the the Teldan Stila mentions the house of David. Okay. So here here's another follow up question. Mm-hmm. A lot of you know I have a PhD in Old Testament, but it's in Psalms and yeah. literary linguistics. That's mm-hmm. not in historical books and things like that, in archaeology. So I'm very ignorant when it comes to these things. Uh, but having inhabited the world of Old Testament studies, uh, a lot of what I read and was exposed to were these claims that. The narrative of Israel was invented by this people in Babylon that came back and needed to kind of firm up an identity for themselves. So the narrative of the Exodus, the narrative of David, and what I'm hearing is that archaeology does not fall into line with that proposition, that this is an invented myth to give an identity to to a transient people group that need to find something in common. Oh no no no! So so that is that was made popular by the Copenhagen School. Um, uh, a group of a group of specific scholars were a part of this kind of this movement that was centered in Copenhagen, and um, the, the yes. So to answer the question is is no, um, and the the best case example of this is with a guy by the name of a guy by the name of William Deaver. He wrote a book essentially titled um, "What Did the Biblical Writers Know?" Right. Okay. And w- William Deaver is no friend of evangelicals. He has he has no qualms about calling evangelicals stupid if he thinks they're being stupid. Sure. 
But this well, is a man. I, I, fair enough. If you think, yeah. This yeah. is I a mean, man. There's something to be said about being courteous yeah. and polite. But look, if you know if that's what your opinion is, you're welcome to it. Um, but Bill Deaver took these guys to task, and he essentially said, "You guys are, you guys are, you're grasping at straws. You're, you're being right. ridiculous." But the emperor's not wearing any clothes. You, here. Exactly. Yeah. And so, and he basically said, and there are other instances involving the same people, particularly around the Tel Dan Stila, to where it, when you read through their argumentation, you are left with a conclusion that is. They are really trying to make their argument work, yeah. and they're sounding absurd. Yeah, yeah. So, archaeologically speaking, there's the archaeology can support the patriarchs. Okay, so so uh, the patriarchs. But before we get there, before yeah. we get there, so we have archaeological evidence for um, United Monarchy. Right. Do we have archaeological evidence for the period of the Judges? Again, so Jericho. For so, example. so I have to. Which throw... Jericho is pre-Judges? I understand that it's more right. Exodus, but so. You have, in, in order to answer that question, you have to ask how explicit of evidence do you want? Because the further you get past the United Monarchy, when you get into the period of the Judges, when you get into the period of the Exodus, when you get into the period of the Patriarchs, sure. Abraham, sure. Isaac, and Jacob. It's less, less of a Christian It's picture. less firm, right. and the archaeological data seems to support the general milieu sure, that as is described assumed. in yes. the text. So like... You mentioned the patriarch. Sorry, interrupt. Yeah. The patriarchal period yes. in which Abraham would have lived, which we're talking uh, 1700, 1750-ish, right? Middle Bronze II is so what we call it. Bedouin yes. uh, patriarchal people groups who are, who have the, the the lifestyle as described yes. in the stories of the patriarchs. Patriarchs again for listeners: Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and right. you may want to include Joseph in that. That was what the lifestyle was in right. terms of that time period. So, so when you fits. read, yeah. So when you read through the book of Genesis, you read about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob being past, uh, agro-pastoralists, Bedouin who go from one place to the next place to the next place, and they seem to be interacting with urban centers. Yeah, and, right. And, sure. And, so Melchizedek, Where they run these kings. Yeah, yeah. So Melchizedek, the king of Salem. This is describing what is. Perfectly attested to in the archaeological record, a dimorphic society. Yeah, we know dimorphic meaning what for us? Uh, dimorphic society essentially meaning there are two distinct elements within a society that are working together for the good of the whole society. Right. So you have the Bedouins and the urban centers. Right. right. So these are two distinct elements within the society, and they clearly need each other. Right. They're clearly working off of each other. They may not necessarily like each other, but they're working together for the good of the of of the picture as a whole. Right. We have a place at a place called Mari. There's a textual archive at Mari that talks about this dimorphic interaction between city dwellers and these Bedouin. And when you read through these texts and you think about how these people are interacting, if you know your if you know the book of Genesis, you're thinking, wait a second, where have I heard this before? Yeah. Oh, this is exactly what's going on. It's contemporary with the literature. Right. The so yeah. so it's 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 describing and attesting to the larger realities that are informing Abraham's actions the way he did. So we may not necessarily have the name of Abraham, but we have a very good picture of what it was like back well, then. Well, and it makes sense that we wouldn't have the name of right. Abraham because Abraham was the, the prequel to the story of the mushrooming of the population of the family of Israel. Um, a couple more, uh, just because of time, there's a couple of archaeology questions mm -hmm. I wanted to ask and try to get to. I know we're covering large tracts of right. land here. Um, one, I want to hear about dating of the Exodus. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, knowing that there's the 13th century right. proposition, and then there's the 16th century proposition, and then um, Sumerian king list. I want to hear a little bit about that. 
Um, yeah, okay, I didn't the, think the, you were going to say that. Yeah, yeah, the list of kings right. and the lifespans that the, end after the deluge and, yeah. all that, and the flood and all right. those sorts of things. So take those in whatever order you want. Let's hear about the Sumerian king list and explain to us what these things are, what, what we mean by Sumerian king list and where it's placed and yeah. what its significant is, significance is for the, the scriptures and Bible believers, and then uh, the dating of the Exodus. So I'm going to go to the Exodus first. And so the Exodus is, is, is the question... Um, and it's a bit ironic because the Exodus event is critical, and not just not just to the Old Testament, but also to the New Testament. Absolutely, yeah. Because Jesus, in in trying to in the Gospel writers trying to explain the significance of his work on the cross and his life, they they invoke terms of the Exodus. Sure, and, they're, and they're the Passover. Jesus is the second Moses. Right. right. Yeah. So it's it's incredibly important scripturally speaking, and in the Old Testament, it is the quintessential event of salvation. Mm -hmm particularly before the, the, the return of the exile. Yeah. And so it's foundational. But for an event that defines so much of Israel's understanding of who Yahweh is, it is never precisely defined, yeah. which I find incredibly ironic. Or, uh, uh, um, what, what do you mean by never precisely defined? The, it's the time of it? Right. So you have, and so we have to talk about the... Well, what the, about the, First Kings 6 -1? Well, and that's where I was going. Okay. So, but that's a debate because... Numbers are numbers, right? Sure, sure, sure. So sure. We, see, we hear numbers and we say, okay, numbers, all right? What, what I'm saying is, I don't disagree with that. I know that the issue with symbolic numbers right. and it's divisible. And that's life. where it is. But First Kings 6.1 says that 480 years after the Israelites right. left Egypt, Solomon began to build right. his temple. And so it's just a simple math problem. Well, I, I'm, I'm just saying the Old Testament, in a sense, is specific about when the Exodus took right. place relative to the building of Solomon's temple. And then there's the follow-up question of how do we interpret that number 480? Well, yeah, and I would, I would, yeah, I would flip, reframe that just a little bit because you say the Old Testament seems to be pretty precise, but I think that's precisely the question. Is it being symbolic or is it trying to be precise? Okay. And 480, 12 tribes. Sure, yep. Times 40, times 40 which, is the general, right. which is the general So 12 time, generations. 12 generations. Which that's, would, that's a very nice, neat number, and it's attested across the ancient Near East, that in celebratory contexts, which is exactly what 1 Kings 6 is, the writers tended to use highly symbolic numbers. Sure, sure, sure. So that's out there, and that's something you have to wrestle with. So there are people who say, no, this is not a symbolic number. This is, this is a concrete number, and it essentially becomes a math problem. Right. However, there's another group of people, both within the, uh, both under the umbrella of quote unquote evangelicals, with high views of scripture that say, "Eh, I don't know if that's a concrete number. That strikes me as highly symbolic. Yeah. And if it becomes an issue of being highly symbolic, then whatever precise dating you may have had, it gets thrown out the window." And if, if I understand correctly, and I, I've read quite a bit about this myself, even though I'm, I'm kind of living in the world of the Psalms, um, just having taught Old Testament yeah. at an undergraduate level. Um, and teach psalms at a, at a graduate level, mm -hmm. is that there is archaeological evidence both for, I don't, against may be too strong of a word, or not quite as supportive for both proposed dates. There's some, there's some there for a 13th mm -hmm. century date, and there's some there for a 16th century date. So I would say that, generally speaking, the evidence, in the, the, the strongest evidence in support of the early date, which is the 1445 mm. date, um, is largely numeric. Yeah. And that comes from the passage in Kings. It also comes from a passage 
in, in the Judges, in the book of Judges, and it also comes from a, a statement from the Apostle Paul. Um, what about archaeology? Archaeologically speaking, the evidence for that early date gets very, very dicey. Right. It's incredibly difficult to interpret, and I don't care what Bryant Wood says, it's not nearly as cut and dry as he's... He, as, so as, Bryant as Wood is a scholar who's yeah. suggesting that it's a later date. Well, he's built his career on it. That's his hill he oh, dies okay, on. Okay, okay. So... If, if you had to choose right now based on the evidence as you know it, because you don't have time to go through right. all the evidence for or not for specific centuries of dating the Exodus, what would you pick, early or late? I, am, I tentatively hold to a late date. So late. I'm a 13th century guy. And the reason why I'm a 13th century guy is because of the nature. I, 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 I tend to view that statement in First Kings chapter 6 as being symbolic. Not necessarily concrete. It's a More very so, round number, twelve and, times forty. Yeah, right, so. so that's and then when I when I take that and then I couple it together with the archaeological picture, particularly what Egypt was like during that time period. What about the Hyksos? It becomes incredibly complicated to, in my mind, see an early date. Now the Hyksos period, and the Hyksos um, is a term that refers to a group of Semitic people. And by the way, the Jews are Semitic. Right. Um, a group of Semitic people that came from the area of Canaan, mm-hmm. but we don't know precisely. Which fits Abraham's family. Right. And aligns kind of nicely with the Joseph idea. Right. And these are Semitic people who rose up and became so powerful within Egypt that they actually became foreign pharaohs. Right. And for they a temporary did period. For about 100 to 150 years. What century? Well, the they, early, were, early they were kicked out in the middle of the 16th. So, they would be aligning with Joseph. Right. Now, the problem with that is that the, the, the evidence that links the Hyksos to any sort of Joseph-type person is extremely circumstantial. Sure. But, as I tell people... People get convicted in the court of law every day on circumstantial evidence. Well, and, and uh, the, the, it being coincidence, I think, is just such a, <laughs> a slim possibility that you'd have a Semitic people around the time, as is dated in 1 Kings 6, as a possibility. Mm-hmm. It's not a symbolic number. It, it doesn't fly in the face of or right. against. And so here's, I know we're, we're covering large yeah. tracts of land very, very briefly here. And uh, I would love to hear the Apiru peoples re- mentioned in the Mari letters right. and if you think that's the Hebrews. But we'll skip past that. Let's skip the Sumerian king list. Is there anything in archaeology that just flies in the face of Scripture that says, no, that is absolutely untrue? In the old, let's say Old Testament. No, I, I don't believe so. And the classic example of Now, this... granted, there's room for the interpretation of data, right? And the question, there's a question about the sophistication of, of dating strategies mm. and, and the science of it all and our instruments for measuring... Mm. There's a possibility for human error that comes into play with, you know, scientific theory. Mm-hmm. All that assumed here, right? And so there's a lot of wiggle room within that question. So but as, as we know it, as all things being equal, anything that flies in the face. So let me qualify the answer with or preface the answer with that comment. That flies in the face of Old Testament, the narrative as we know it. No, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't found anything that has caused me to really scratch my head and think, well, this is, this is completely crazy. Um, one, and one of the uh, or say there's no way that that text is possible in light of what we know about our. I think I think one way to think about this is in the terms of an example. So let's let's think about the terms and uh, let's think about the example of the number of Israelites 
Yeah, the, coming out of the Exodus. According to the, the number giving in the Old Testament. So in the book of Numbers, there's two censuses. Censuses? Is that the word? Censi? Censuses. I think it's censuses. Um, so there's two censuses, and basically it becomes um, the traditional understanding of it is, is adding up the number of men in these census lists. And when you factor in any, any sort of kids and, and children and women and, and animals, the number of the Israelites that supposedly left Egypt balloons to just over 2 million people. Right. Which there is, are yeah. significant problems with a group of people being that large. Right. And, um, but we already mentioned symbolic numbers, and do we know what this word thousand LF And that's where I'm going, yeah. and that's where I'm going. So this seems to be an instance to where, archaeologically speaking, you have something in the text that just does not comport. Yeah. But what happens if that—so let's look deeper, okay? Let's, let's let—and this, this, this is what I tell my students. For the moment, let archaeology do what it is designed to do. Yeah. Let that discipline speak for itself. And then let's 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 take let's see what they say, evaluate what they say, and then let's go back to the text and let's ask some some difficult questions. And one of the questions that we have to wrestle I, with I would is say, what let's does ask this honest question? Yeah, and sometimes those questions are difficult, right. but Sometimes they're not. Yeah. And so we come back to this word elif. Hebrew word elif, right? And, it's, and it has it's a whole he, range of yeah, meanings. And, and so it can mean anything from thousand. It can mean unit, which is an undefined undefined size Group. of something. Yeah. It, it can mean a fighting unit, which remains undefined. It can mean a cow. So if we said, right, well, Aleph, the first letter of the alphabet, yeah. thing, the toro and all that. And I'm sorry, toro, I'm speaking Spanish creole, being the bull. Yeah. Um, so in other words, if it says 50 Aleph or Elephim right. uh, left, that could be 50,000. It yes. could be 50 units. It could be 50 groups. It could right. be 50 cows in right. some circumstances. So there's an interpretive problem. Which would be ruled out, of course, by context in this case, the cows. Translation right. Yeah, the cows doesn't work because yeah. we're not talking about cows. But it becomes an interpretive issue. Sure. And so if we are willing to say, you know what, that's the traditional understanding of Aleph there, but there are these other possibilities that make sense because censuses and, and at one level were a way to document the size of your fighting force. Right. So what if that is is recounting an ill-defined number of people that could go into a fighting unit? Right. You know, it's it's 50 units yeah, there's of more, men. There's more ambiguity there than So there's a lot more ambiguity. Precision there. in terms of counting. And this is this is the this is this this is the frustration of linguistics. Right? Because right, sure, language, sure. It, yeah. you know, for, for all that language does for us, it can be incredibly ambiguous. Yeah. And so it becomes an issue of what happens if I need to let go of some of my traditional understandings because the text allows it. Yeah, and, and remember, too, that those traditional understandings, as we're talking about them, as they inform, let's say, evangelicalism, um, are based off of translations right. of the Bible in a, a majority of cases, not yeah. in all cases. And those Bible translations in English could have been translating that Hebrew word thousand for generations of Christians. Yeah. And so the idea of saying, well, it could, it's possible it doesn't mean thousands. For some people, the alarm bells go off and the flags go up of, you're altering my Bible here. Yeah. But the reality is we know a lot more about Hebrew today than we did yeah. when the King James was right, written absolutely. And, and all these other things. And so For all the good things that was the King James version of the Bible, and, and I, the, right now it's outdated. And the evangelical doctrine of inerrancy talks about the autographs. Yeah. Now, we don't have any autographs mm -hmm. being the originals, but the closest we can get to that, the Masoretic text. The, what's not inerrant are the translations. Yes. And that's something I think is really helpful for people to understand and reconciling sometimes what they feel like is a, a disjarring moment of being told that the Bible may say something different than you thought it said. Not, no one's changing the Bible. If you remember that when we talk about inerrancy, 
uh, which is there's no error in scripture, and, and that even has a specific definition. Mm -hmm. What do we mean by error and all those things? We're talking about the original text of the scripture, and that's why Bible translations always need updated. One thing, modern language is always changing, but we're always learning more about Hebrew because even the science of linguistics is changing. Um, so, okay, we're just about out of time. Well, let me let yeah, me go ahead. Let, go. let me kind of kind of wrap that up. And this is what I tell my students. What is the text demanding of you? And so in these moments when we feel like, uh-oh, this is, this is going to set us up for a team, team Bible versus team archaeology and whose side are we going to pick? You know, I think we need to step back from those perceived moments and really ask ourselves, what is the text demanding of us? What is the text saying? What, is, what, is, what, what, what do we have to, you know, what, what is God telling us to go with in, in terms of what the text is communicating to us? And I think that when we're honest in those instances, at least this has been my experience, that yes, some of my traditional understandings could be rocked a little bit, but, but that may be okay. And, and in the end, my faith is deeper because of it. I feel like I have a better um, uh, and a more solid foundation of what Scripture is and God's message and everything like that. But yes, it was a process that I had to go through, um, but if I was willing to really dig deep and really ask myself, okay, what is God demanding of me from, to, you know, what is God demanding from this passage or from this, of this verse or from this statement? I found that there are no really, there are no errors when it comes to archaeology in, in, in conjunction with intersecting and converging with, with, with Scripture. I've not found an instance that has said, you know what, I gotta, I gotta pick a side. Sure. I gotta pick a side. I think there are, and I think there are enormous possibilities for intelligent syntheses mm -hmm. between the archaeological data and the demands of Scripture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's hard work. Well, I, I think one of the big issues that, in fact, we had a hallway conversation about just yesterday with regard to archaeology and science and picking sides, and yeah. oftentimes that's the kind of the scenario that people are forced into, yes. is the question of literal six-day creationism yeah. and, you know, does science show that the science showing that the age of the earth is, you know, 15 billion years mm -hmm. old or the cosmos, let's say, their universe, uh, et cetera. And how do we reconcile that? Let's say that that's archaeology, because mm -hmm. in a way it is. It's, mm -hmm. it's, you know, the hard science that's doing carbon dating and all these sorts of things and calculations against God created in six days and uh, versus theistic evolution. And so I think what comes into play that makes people feel uncomfortable, and I understand this, I've been there myself and I still am there on some of these issues, is how we're dealing with the scriptures. Mm -hmm. if, the, if it says a day, why don't we just take that at face value? Right. If it says two million people came out, why don't we just, and, and that's where we do semantic studies. We go, okay, well, what does the Hebrew word yom, day, It's because mean? communication is more than and just words. It's more page. than just words. It's, it's, it's semiotic systems. Mm -hmm. Now that is my area, yeah. and we could talk about that, but I think that's why is that oftentimes people are, are, feel like they have to subvert the text or try to make the text say something that it doesn't say Literally, yeah. and, and the issue that's coming into play right there, once again, is that that may not be what the text is saying literally, yeah. because more comes into the, we call hermeneutical process, yeah. the interpretive process, than just a dictionary and defining words. There's, right. there's other things at play, and it's, it's just more complicated than yes. that. And that is not a way of copping out. It's not, it, it could be a slippery slope, but anything can be a slippery slope. But I don't think it's a way of copping out. It's just a way of going, Let's, let's continue to research and investigate yeah. while at the same time believing that the Bible is what it claims yeah. itself to be in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Um, and believing that the Bible says that God is all-knowing and that he doesn't lie, which the Bible mm -hmm. does say, 
uh, then there's no error in the text. And so, um, so these things are they're, they're complicated. But right. I think that's why, anyway, people feel like they have to choose a camp. Yeah, and I feel like they're forced in the disposition. But it's more nuanced yeah. than that. It is more nuanced than that. And, uh, well, our time is about up. Um, I would love to hear. I wanted to hear about, um, and maybe we can have a round two of this. Mm. I, I say round as if this is a debate. It's not yeah. a debate at all. It's the second part. I've yeah. said this. Um, the importance of historicity mm -hmm. in our faith. So yeah. um, <clears throat> I very much firmly believe that the Bible teaches and, and teaches us to understand the importance of real historical events, that it does matter yeah, that Jesus rose from the dead. Absolutely. It does matter that Israel actually came out of Egypt. Right. And it does matter that the Red Sea split. What was the nature of that split, et cetera? You know, we can go into conversation, but and the question of why is historicity important? Right. And why does it matter that there was a man named Jesus? And why does it matter that these things happened uh, the way that they were described? Because right. I believe that it does matter, this idea of God's holiness and his transcendence, that he can actually break in to time and space right. and make natural changes uh, to the order of things so as to work out his redemptive plan. Mm -hmm. I think that's an important, let's say, cog in the bigger system of the Christian worldview, is the importance of historicity and the very real events of redemption in history. Oh, yeah, I would say that, yeah, history matters. History matters. Yeah. It absolutely matters. Um, and, which I think, is, and I think 1 Kings 15 kind of puts certain things to bed when Paul, uh, no, I'm sorry, 1 Kings, 1 Corinthians, uh, when Paul, first, see what I'm saying? 1 Kings, and my mind's always on Kings, right? Yeah. Um, but no, First Corinthians fifteen, when Paul yeah, when Paul talks, yeah. when, it's it's either it's First Corinthians, right? Not yeah. Second. Yeah. yeah. When you know Paul talks about it, you know if the resurrection doesn't happen, then we're all idiots. Hey, what, what's it worth? Yeah. Yeah. What's we're it fools. Worth? Well, and 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 this this is a whole another conversation, and one thing that I really um, appreciate about N.T. Wright and and his arguments here is that. Uh, that the fact that this matters and that we're all fools if it didn't happen um, because once again God actually can make, break in and make a change yeah. to the very nature of things and that to me is essential uh, to the idea of holiness and uh, and the the writings of the New Testament specifically on the on the resurrection are written to make it really clear that it is a real resurrection yeah. and to suggest that it doesn't matter flies absolutely in the face of the spirit of those texts which is this guy really rose yeah, from the dead? He ate food with us. Yeah, so yeah. And so and so poked him. Yeah, they put their they put as, their they put their from, hands in their yeah, yeah, holes. Yeah, exactly. Aside from yeah. the philosophy and the theology yeah. of the Christian worldview and all that fancy yeah. stuff, as the text is written, it is saying to us he really rose. Yeah. And so there's the question of reading the Bible with integrity too. Yeah. So all kinds of issues converge on these things, yeah. which is why they're so interesting. Yeah. So, uh, Dr. Schreiner, thank you so much uh, for joining us. I'm sure we'll have you back at some point. Uh, we're glad that you're taking time away from your family and your studies. And uh, we pray for God's blessing and illumination through the Holy Spirit as you work on your commentaries and in further studies. And make a splash uh, for the calls of Christ within the Academy and Old Testament studies. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. All right, everyone. We'll see you next time.